At some point, you will look in the mirror and you will see a person who is not physically fit and able to do the things he or she once did. We tend to make our emotions now the dictator of what reality is. You're listening to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church, episode 11. This week, we're going to look at the issue of desire as it relates to middle adulthood. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Pres. Welcome to the 1A, a podcast designed to look at how to apply biblical principles in our day-to-day lives. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can check us out at our website, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can find all our episodes there, as well as links on how to subscribe. If this is a ministry that you enjoy, then we appreciate it if you would subscribe using the application of your choice and leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. Today I'll be discussing the caution of using the phrase middle adulthood, whether desires change in that phase of life, and the validity of the midlife crisis. Our first series is coming to a conclusion soon. I would like to wrap up with a feedback episode. So if you have any questions for me or Dr. Thomas, we'd love to hear from you. You can call, text, tweet, or email your comments, questions, or concerns. For all of our contact information, check the website. Now, on to our discussion. This week we're talking about middle adulthood. And appropriately, everyone who I thought might be able to speak to the topic of middle adulthood was too busy. So you've just got me. The first question that comes to mind for me when we talk about middle adulthood is actually the term itself, middle adulthood. It's only recently that we've begun to talk in terms of young adult, middle adult, late adult. And so I wonder if that terminology is even helpful. Well, like most things, I think it probably has some pros and cons. I think when we talk about young adulthood or middle adulthood, It's helpful to think that there are seasons of life. And then each one of these seasons, there are pros and there are cons. There may be intense challenges that you have now that you won't have to worry about, at least not quite as much in later seasons. And that each season has certain rewards, rewards of parenting and rewards of intimacy with relationships It helps give us perspective, and we can take the long view on things, so we don't get quite so sucked down into the individual moment by moment and get discouraged when we find ourselves struggling in the same way today that we did yesterday, and maybe even in the same way that we will tomorrow. At the same time, I think there is something almost detrimental about trying to break up adulthood into this young, middle, and late adulthood. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should reject just the nomenclature of it. I think we can use that nomenclature just fine. Uh, But I think we just want to be careful about what all is being imported when we hear it in the first place. It seems like this is part of the further adolescentification of American culture. And let me explain that for a moment. If you've noticed 
more and more what culture wants is it wants our young kids to become adolescents more quickly. So now you've get this area of tweens, um, and it wants our older kids and even our adults to stay adolescents longer. Adolescence is this weird phase where we are highly driven by our emotions, uh, where we can find ourselves incredibly joyous, incredibly satisfied, and in the following hour find ourselves almost utterly destroyed. And in a culture that more and more is casting its lot with its emotions rather than any sort of um, logic, um, and, and I don't mean to say that pejoratively, it's just we tend to make our emotions now the dictator of what reality is. Rather than allowing our emotions to inform us, just be one component that tells us what reality might be. It wants us to push away from the responsibility that adulthood should come with. And that's really the place that I have my concerns. We really should be those, you know, and middle adulthood is usually defined by people who have children somewhere in around their adolescence. So usually around 40 to 45 for the parents, but it doesn't matter so much their age as the age of their children. By that point, we should be those who are leading. We should be those who are mature, who can sacrifice for the other, who can look at other people and notice who's in trouble and be willing to give up of our time, our talents, our money in order that we might bear somebody else up. And so importing this language, I think, actually tries to get people to be less mature than they should be. So that's my concern uh, with using the term uh, middle adulthood, though the concern itself does not rise to the level that I think we should stop using the term. Again, I just think that we need to be discerning when we use the term about what it can be doing, even subconsciously. If we adopt the language of middle adulthood, does desire change for middle adults? Well, the answer, I think, is a complex one. I think the answer is probably yes and no. Remember what Dr. Barbian said. He said that there were some universal desires. And then on the backside of those desires, the kind of God-given desires, were what he called shadow desires. If we go to that level, then I think that the desires themselves don't really change. I think those desires find themselves with different expressions as we get older and as our concerns change, as the dynamics of our family and friends change, our involvement in certain activities change. Uh, but I think the desires themselves are actually pretty steady. And yet I do think that there is enough change maybe even in just the quantity, maybe not the quality, that is the desires themselves change, but how much desire you feel on these things, that if you looked back, you would be able to say, I, I feel different in this area when I'm 45 than I did when I was 22 as a, as a young adult, or when I was 15, when I was a child. So I think there is some difference. Now, what do those differences tend to be? Well, in the first place, those who are in middle adulthood tend to have more solid identities. 
What I mean by that is that they tend to know who they are, the gifts that they've been given, the sort of things that they like and don't like, um, the things that they're good at and not good at, and they seem to have more of a rested identity in those things. So they don't tend to look for approval quite as much, and they tend to have more of a, a take-me-as-I-come sort of attitude. Now, that could be done sinfully for sure, but being able to say, you know what, I've not been given teaching gifts, but I've been given administrative gifts. So deploy me for the kingdom in a way that I can use my administrative gifts. That is a good thing. However, what's key there is finding what your rested identity has been in. Rested identity is that place where you tend to find your most innate value. So if your rested identity is in your looks, for instance, then as you reach middle adulthood and you find it more difficult for your body to recover physically, your identity may come under attack and you may actually feel yourself beginning to get more anxious, more stressed, more sad, more scared. Whereas if you've been pushing yourself to find your identity, your value in Christ, that you are one of his, that he loved you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you and knew you from the beginning of time and knew you would be one of his. If that truth has been something you've been massaging into your heart, then what you find yourself is instead of increasing that sadness and that uh, fear, you actually get an increase of resilience, of joy, and of peace. This does bring up the question, of the midlife crisis. The midlife crisis has become kind of ubiquitous, especially in modern life, at least the fact that it exists. Uh, We see it in movies and we see it in TV shows. We hear it sung about. And the question is, is the midlife crisis a real event or, or is it something made up? Again, I think there's a complex answer here. I think there's elements of truth Uh, And then I think that there are elements of untruth as well. So let's begin with some of the elements of truth about this idea of a midlife crisis. Men especially seem to have a harder time as they see their physical vitality decrease. So watching their bodies begin to lose some of that energy, that youthfulness, that vitality and strength, does there there are studies that show it does seem to impact men more than it impacts women uh, men tend to go through kind of a down period somewhere here in mid 40s through mid 50s as they as they wrestle with that now there are ways to fight back of course there are things that you can do with diet and exercise things that are hugely beneficial for you Um, that can try and get your body to maintain some of that vitality that you had as a youth. However, it takes a lot of intentionality to keep that there. And a lot of times, the reason people are engaged in that activity is because they're so scared of their mortality, they want to cling and hold on to any sign of vitality and youth that they can If that becomes the aim, if the aim is not, hey, I just want to be healthy, I want to be one who can be physically vigorous and not be sore for five days, then youth and vitality have become your rested identity. And there's no way that that won't ultimately and finally betray you. 
It may take until you're 65, 75, 85, I don't know. But at some point, you will look in the mirror and you will see a person who is not physically fit and able to do the things he or she once did. So for men specifically, it's important that as they reach this kind of middle adulthood, midlife, that they become more and more those who take their identity not in what they do, but in who they are as people of Jesus Christ. Now also, uh, women can have a hard time here too um, if their definition of physical beauty hasn't matured with their bodies. I mentioned this just a few minutes ago, but um, if their idea of beauty continues to be the idea of beauty of an 18-year-old or 20-year-old. And this is what is so toxic about some of the advertisements that you see where they've done all this Photoshop and what you're looking at is not actually a physical woman who exists in time anywhere. You're looking at something that might as well be a cartoon because they've erased all signs of age at all. If that is all that you've looked at and that continues to be your bar, your hurdle for beauty, then you will find yourself betrayed. You will find someday when you look in the mirror, there is nothing you can do to win the war against age. I remember I took an educational psychology class one year and my professor, we were talking about the ethics of teaching. And one of the things, of course, that came up was the increasing epidemic of teachers having an affair with a student. And we listed all the reasons why teachers and students end up having an affair. And at the top of the list, and I'll never forget it, was that a teacher's idea of beauty didn't age appropriately, especially for high school teachers. Their idea of beauty was stuck in this 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old phase because that's what they were seeing in and out every day. And so they were more prone as they saw their spouse and their peers age to inappropriate activity with those whom they found beautiful. So it's important for men that they not have an inappropriate view of vitality and try and rest their identity there. It's important for women that they don't have an inappropriate view of beauty and try and rest their identity there. Both of those things can lead to that um, midlife crisis event, um, if you want to call it that. However, a place where both genders can find themselves struggling is if they're not consistently finding places of joy. Now, this doesn't mean that we're hedonistic, that we try and configure all of our life around those places where we find ourselves entertained and amused and that we're constantly running after our joy. But if you're not finding joy regularly in your spouse, in your family, in your work, and more specifically in the Lord, then you will find yourself more vulnerable to this idea of a midlife crisis. This is complicated, especially because this phase is delineated by the presence of adolescence in the home. Adolescents, like I said earlier, they can be so happy and so joyous one minute and they can be so down and so depressed the next minute. Being around them and seeing them as they go through those sort of infatuation highs, um, those joys that they have, it can remind us of what it is that we used to have. 
And if we find ourselves in the middle of life that feels like drudgery, um, while they are exploring and adventuring and having these overwhelming highs, it can really hit a place for us where we feel a deficit. Also, having an adolescent in the house is the time when couples' satisfaction scores are at their lowest. Because adolescents are all over the place, highs and lows, they're difficult to live with. And they can be frustrating and maddening. They tend to be less respectful. They're trying to individuate. That is, they're trying to create their own personalities and take on and decide if they want to be like you or be like somebody else. And it can just be exhausting. So when you have an adolescent in the home, not only does it make uh, it more apparent when you're not finding your joy, if you do have joy, it tends to rob joy. Not that there's anything wrong with adolescents themselves. It's just preparing yourself for that particular phase. Um, and that leads to, if you have not been intentional about coming into this phase, uh, a higher probability that you will find yourself in this place of crisis. Those are the truths, but let's talk about the untruths of this idea of a midlife crisis. First thing, to my knowledge, there's not been any research to validate the idea of a midlife crisis. There's nothing that shows that everybody has or tends to have some place here in middle adulthood where they wrestle with their own mortality and they feel like they've got to go out and buy some sports car or live some dream. And let's be clear, the midlife crisis is an issue of desire. It's uh, seeing some worldly desire and thinking this is my last shot at it and thinking that that worldly desire will ultimately ultimately lead to happiness and satisfaction rather than finding one's happiness, satisfaction, and joy in the Lord. Most people will report moments of feeling their mortality for sure and being more intimately aware of it and being aware of the fact that there are certain aspirations which have to change or even die altogether. But most people do not report some sort of crisis in the middle of their life. Instead, it tends to be something, like most things in our lives, that slowly builds. Also, marriage failure rates and infidelity rates don't drastically change during this period of life, at least not for healthy couples. Couples that would describe themselves as being in a relationship where they feel loved and where they love their spouse. Actually, if the marriage has really just been about Jesus serving one another and displaying Jesus to one another, this period is a period where intimacy grows and satisfaction grows. As you see all the things that happen, all the worries that come along with having an adolescent child, and you see them vacillate back and forth, it may remind you of what you had at one point early in your relationship and you want to get back there. Great. Go on a date with your spouse. Remember what it was like to be in love. But largely you're reminded of how great it is to have somebody who's gotten through that with you. They've seen the worst part of you. They can handle this crazy creature that has somehow become more obsessed with music than they do about being a part of our family. And they can bear that burden with you and do it well. If we are ministering to one another and not just ourselves, midlife becomes not a crisis, but an opportunity, an opportunity for growth and grace in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We find ourselves more secure, more resilient, 
more joyous, and more peaceful. You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all of our episodes, which you can find on our webpage, which is firstpreszcolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcast applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments, questions, or an issue that you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can contact us via email at 1A at firstpreszcolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstpreszcolumbia.org. Or on Twitter at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or you can call us by phone, 803-281-1795. That's 803-281-1795. We look forward to seeing you next week and hope that this material has helped you to live out the gospel for each other and for the kingdom. Until then, God bless. God bless.